Welcome to Timely Wisdom with Drs. Silas Bradford, Sarita Wright, Brenda Wallace, Carolyn Carlisle, and I am Venice Burns. You can watch us live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time. Follow us on Facebook. Subscribe on YouTube. Today our guest is Reverend William Lamar IV, Double Dutching Ministry and Social Justice. This was recorded on April 20th, 2021. Um, Dr. Wallace, we, we have a, 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 a person on the forefront of relevancy with us on today. Will you please introduce to us our wonderful guest? Well, our wonderful guest is William Bill H. Lamar IV. And he's the pastor of Metropolitan AME Church in Washington, D.C. He was ordained as an itinerant elder in 2000 in the Florida Annual Conference of the AME Church. Lamar has also served congregations in Monticello, Florida, Orlando, Florida, Jacksonville, Florida, and Hyattsville, Maryland. Prior to his most recent appointments in Maryland and the District of Columbia, Lamar was the Managing Director of Leadership Education at Duke University Divinity School in Durham, North Carolina. Through his association with Duke, he convened and resourced executive pastors of large churches, denominational finance executives, young denominational leaders, Methodist bishops, and the constituency of Lilly Endowment Sustaining Pastoral Excellence Program. For nearly 15 years, Lamar has been actively involved with organizations like Direct Action Research Training, DART, Industrial Areas Foundation, IAF, and Washington Interfaith Network, WIN for faith-based community organizing for justice. Mm. We hoping for some justice today. Mm. Most recently, he has collaborated with the Repairers of the Breach, the Center for Community Change, the People Improving Communities Through Organization, PICO, to uh, enact a social justice ministry in surrounding communities and to exhibit a real embrace for the beloved community. A 1996 Magna Cum Laude graduate of Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University, my arch rival, Lamar earned the Bachelor of Science degree in public management with a minor in philosophy and religion and a certificate in human resource management. In 1999, he earned the Master of Divinity degree from Duke University. Lamar is currently a doctoral student in the inaugural cohort of Christian Theological Seminary PhD program in African-American preaching and sacred rhetoric. An avid reader and writer, Lamar has published articles in outlets such as The Christian Century, The Christian Recorder, Divinity Magazine, faithandleadership.com, The Anvil, The Undefeated.com, and The Huffington Post. He has also been featured in The Washington Post and The Afro-American on the WNYCs, The Takeaway, NPR's IA, and Huffington Post Live not only to mention PBS's News Hour. I am honored to introduce to some and to present to others, my friend, my friend. We we met each other at Princeton University's Pastors Theologians Program. And he and I were two only African-Americans there and he kept them folk straight. And I appreciated it. Welcome. Bill Lamar. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Dr. Brenda. Thank you, and Dr. Wright, Dr. Bradford. Yes. How well, you doing in these COVID streets? 
These these streets are COVID streets, and I am behaving appropriately. Uh, I have uh, in uh, as my partner a tremendous uh, black woman who does not play about hand washing and masking and all that good stuff. So I probably would have been dead about six months ago. She <laughs> she would yeah I would have contracted it multiple times because she she cracks the whip. Well, that's wonderful. We're glad to know that you are surviving in these streets. Um, We've got several questions for you. And one of them is, how do you define social justice? You know what? And and, and I call you Brenda. You call me Bill. We go way back. You know what? I I do not use that language as much anymore. Mm. Let me tell you why. Uh, because the very enemies of God, the very enemies of God's people and God's Christ have found a way to demonize that term, right? By calling it unbiblical, by calling it Marxist, socialist, demonic. And uh, I, I will not call the name of the individual, but there's a prominent white evangelical who wrote some pieces directly targeting the term social justice. So what I have done uh, is I've gone back to the biblical text to ask different questions around framing. Because as we shared, Brendan, when we were talking, when I go out and do the work I'm doing, trying to get Black churches, Black pastors to partner, the question they ask me is, what does this work of affordable housing, of living wages, of of destroying the prison industrial complex. What does this have to do with salvation? And what I have to ask myself is, how did we get to a place that we left the interpretation of the gospel that Nancy Ambrose had, Howard Thurman's grandmother? We left the interpretation of the gospel that Nat Turner bequeathed to us and Harriet Tubman bequeathed. And we grasped the white evangelical, nakedly fake pious understanding of salvation. First of all, you'd have to search high and low in the New Testament. Some scholars say you cannot find a reference to salvation that is not communal in the text. That's right. In its original language. Two, another major situation here is if you look at how we present salvation, the way I grew up, when the preacher preaches and at the end of the sermon asks, would you like to be saved? Uh, they will say, close your eyes. If you're not saved, because you're going to go to heaven, you can go to hell. If you don't come and take my hand and say that. I never heard Jesus in my reading of the text approach anyone about salvation the way we approach them. Mm-hmm. Jesus never asked somebody, when you die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? Jesus seemed to be more concerned with people who were living in hell mm-hmm. and bring them out of hell in the present circumstance. Another piece to remember is the entire Christ event. Incarnation is God becoming flesh. Question that the ancients asked, why did God become human? Why did God become one of us? God takes on flesh and Jesus never bifurcated the spiritual and the physical. They were of one piece. So what we have to do is we have to return to that Eastern African understanding. And Brenda, we mentioned this uh, yesterday. Be very careful of those who would separate the body and the spirit. I just got through reading and writing a paper on Willie Jennings' Christian imagination. He goes through the Catholic theology that allowed the Portuguese, when they confronted the Africans, even after we were baptized, what the church said to the conquistadores is, you control their bodies. We control their bodies. God has their souls. That is fundamentally unchristian. It's fundamentally wedding the logic of Christianity with the logic of colonialism and capitalism. And so we have to stop asking questions of our people that Jesus never asked anybody. He never asked nobody if you die tonight where you go. He was more concerned with the wholeness of the human being. As I share with you, Brenda, what happens to my spirit happens to my body. That's right. My body happens to my spirit. If you beat my ass, you beat my spirit. Mm. I just had to say it like that. I'm I'm keeping it 100. What you do to my body shows up in my spirit. Absolutely. 
And what you do to my spirit shows up in my body. They call it psychosomatic illness, right? Right. What happens here, what happens spiritually, psychologically affects the body. And so what we have to do is to stop allowing Jerry Falwell, even from the grave, Billy Graham from the grave, Paula White, allowing them to read scripture for us and the scores of black evangelicals and white face. You cannot read or interpret scripture for me. I refuse to let you read scripture. I refuse for you to interpret it. When I came to Metropolitan, people said, we're gonna study the Bible. I said, we will study the Bible after we understand that what is most important is how we interpret it. So we read Kelly Brown Douglas, after we read Howard Thurman, after we read Renita Weems, and after we read Katie Cannon, who teach us how to read the text, then we'll read the text because first we must detox from those who have used this book and are using this book to kill us. Man, Ooh. that's powerful, Bill. Ooh. Ooh. Okay, I got to calm down. Mm. So if you say that social justice, the word that you don't repeat anymore, is the work of salvation, how do you relate it based on the Matthew 5 text? Feed mm. the hungry, visit the sick, mm. see the imprisoned. How, how do you work with that? So, so let, let me say this, Brennan. And, and it's not that I don't say it. I want to be clear. I'm not that doctrinaire. But what I really want to do is I want us to understand why it is that people have segmented that work from the work of the gospel from the beginning, even viewed as something different. The reason it is viewed as something separate and apart from the gospel is because those who control the interpretive regime do not want it to be centered. They want to center personal piety and individual salvation the same way that they seek to take everything that is public and privatize it, right? So they want to do theologically what they have done to education, right? What they have done with the prison system, what they have done even with weaponry and defense, you privatize it. Let me back up a little bit. Let's go to Luke 4 before we go to Matthew. Jesus says in Luke 4, 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Notice, Jesus doesn't say social justice is upon me. Mm -hmm. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Hagia the Holy Spirit is upon me. When the spirit of God is upon you and you are anointed by the Hagia by the spirit of God, that means that the spirit of God is literally poured over you. When the Hagia when the spirit of God has been poured over you, like your mama used to put Vaseline and lotion and her spit on you from being ashy. When that happens, then you bring good news to the poor. Yeah. Those who claim to be Pentecostal, those who claim to be filled with the spirit, this is that pneumatological Pentecostal work. To be filled with the spirit is to move in this way ethically in the world, to bring good news to the poor. And as Liz Theo Harris has told us in her exegesis, that this word means those who have been made poor by systems. The only good news that those people get from God is that it is not my intent that the system do this to you and I am going to change it. It's like Mons Mabley said, the only thing an old man can tell me is where to find a young man, right? So what what this happens here, what this says is the only thing the gospel can tell the poor people is that it is not God's intent and I am going to reorder the very economics of the world such that the hungry are filled and the rich are sent away empty. So Mm. when the spirit anoints, then you move forward to bring good news to the poor. The captives are released. Sight is recovered for those who cannot see. The oppressed go free. And the year of the Lord's favor, which is fundamentally a reversal of the economic order. Now, here's the thing. Notice those who control the interpretive regime, notice what they take literally in scripture and what they will not take literally. They only take literally the things that keep them in power. 
When they read this, they say, oh, no, Jesus didn't mean that. Right. Anything that would reverse the order they claim is to be read either poetically or that those ethics are not a part of Christian realism a la Niebuhr. Right. But we don't live as black folks in Niebuhrian Christian realism. We live in Harriet Tubman. I got my gun. Let's get the hell off the plantation. We live in real freedom fighter Nat Turner who says to us, we are going to escape the machinery of death for life and we will pay the price. The problem is we do not know what our ancestors taught us around interpretation. We have allowed our children to come into ministry and not know who David Walker is and not read Sojourner Truth not be shaped by Frederick Douglass's reading of texts. It is our fault that we have not said, turn off televangelists. And let me tell you about those who interpret the, interpreted this book in the cause of freedom. And so the question I ask people, you, you come to me with the Bible, I don't care. I want to know from what angle are you interpreting? Because I only listen to certain people who interpret. I had a, had a, 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 con a congregation member, and I'm, and I'm not, well, I won't call the name, but he asked me, should I read this person? I said, no, you don't read this person. Let me give you what to read that will lead to your liberation and will help you to separate yourself from the demonic logic of white evangelicalism. Let's move to Matthew 25. Notice the only regime for salvation that you hear in most of our churches who are simply mimicking what they've heard white evangelicals say is the Romans road, right? Give the preacher your hand, give Jesus your heart, all right? Which is a poor reading of that text, but we're not going to deal with that now. Matthew 25 lays out an ethical understanding of what salvation means, ethical and communal. They downplay that. And they lift up the personal and the pietistic. We have to ask why. We have to ask why. Who benefits? That's what the question is. Exactly. The, exactly. The why That's is always who's benefiting from the reading and interpreting of the text in that way. Exactly. Um, we, we see that you have been on the news here lately. I'm looking forward to seeing you with uh, Joy Reid this week. And I'm telling you, them proud boys have come and destroyed property at your church. So tell us what's going on there. Well, it's, it's fascinating. You, I'll give you the, the quick version. So uh, one Sunday morning, uh, I was going down to prepare for worship. Got a call from uh, a white sister who's a friend and pastor who, who was offering me uh, her condolences. And I, and I asked her, I said, Karen, what's going on? And she said, uh, she sent me the actual clip that the Proud Boys had put on their Twitter feed and the social media of them coming into the yard of Metropolitan. Let me tell you all that when you step on the ground of Metropolitan, you're stepping on a holy ground. This is the oldest continuously owned piece of property by Africans in the District of Columbia. From the pulpit of that place, Mary McLeod Bethune spoke, Du Bois spoke, Duke Washington spoke, the Grimke sisters spoke, Daniel Payne, Henry Turner. The list goes on and on and on. It's holy ground for us. They trespassed the holy ground, tore our Black Lives Matter sign down. And immediately we partnered with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and a very prominent law firm here in D.C. who pro bono, we have gone after the Proud Boys. So if you search, you'll see the Metropolitan is the church that is suing the Proud Boys. And we're seeking to use the playbook that the Southern Poverty Law Center used when they bankrupted the, the Klan. We don't play. Uh, you're, not, you're not coming on our ancestral land, defaming, defacing it, and thinking there will be no consequences. As my grandfather said to his grandsons, if you come from me, ain't no rabbit in you. And if you ain't from the country, you know what I mean? Ain't no rabbit in you. I mean, you ain't scared. You got, I had a rabbit in my yard the other day. I was just admiring. The minute the rabbit knew that I was looking at the rabbit, the rabbit ran. My granddad said, if you come from me, ain't no rabbit in you. Ain't no rabbit in me. Ain't no rabbit in the people at Metropolitan. Ain't no rabbit in our ancestors. We're coming after them 
because they need to understand that although the United States of America, the Imperial American Project, hardly respects Black humanity and rarely uh, rarely respects uh, our assertion to citizenship, just like Mumbet years ago who sued for her own freedom, the first African, this African woman who sued for her freedom, we will continue coming at you. And though we know your systems of justice have been hijacked and formed in fashion in the interest of white supremacy, like Sterling Brown, the great poet said, we're going to keep coming and coming and coming and coming. And we're going to keep bending and working and making this thing you call democracy, which has not been democracy. We're going to keep challenging you to make it so. Please put your questions in the chat. Uh, if you have questions for Bill, Lamar, we want to hear them. So please put your questions in, in the chat. Um, here in Georgia, we got our first black senator. Mm. And these folk have done everything they can since the election to roll back voting rights. Mm. So how do we sustain the momentum of the black church to continue to fight for voting rights, housing, employment, black bodies, black bodies that we are waiting for a verdict from about black, a black body. So talk to us about that. You know what now, and, and, and um, President Obama disavowed uh, Derek Bell his constitutional law professor. Uh, and that's problematic for me. You should read Derrick Bell's Faces at the Bottom of the Well. Let me tell you how Derrick Bell, by crystallizing ancestral wisdom, helped me to be free. He writes, racism in America is permanent. I need y'all to hear that. That's so. Right now, we are fighting for the voting rights they told us that we had in 1965. We don't have them because America gives and takes with the same hand when it comes to us. That the regime that governs America theologically and politically is not just white supremacists, but it is anti-Black. We need to be very, very clear about this. The reason I have a smile on my face and I'm filled with the resistance known as black joy is because America can't fool me mm. believing that it is something that it is not. Let me tell you the wisdom of my great grandfather that you all's grandfathers probably had too. And we abandoned it. My daddy tells me this story. And I've heard many black people tell this story that when the moon landing occurred in the sixties, my daddy went across the street to his grandfather and said, Big Daddy, they, they on the moon. And my daddy said, Big Daddy said to him, boy, that's what's wrong with y'all. Y'all believe everything white people tell you. And I need you to hear the, the it's funny, but it's the epistemology that saves us. We cannot believe their propaganda. Amen. We must always work to build a world of human flourishing. That is not a world that America has ever been committed to. I dare anyone to show me historically where America has been committed to human flourishing. The founding impulse was removing the natives from their land by violence. That violence has not stopped. It has just been made more efficient through technology. And so what I am saying is this, when, when it comes to Georgia, be clear that they will never stop trying to keep you from having political control over your own space and your own body. There are some of them, I'm not wholesale dismissing, but the majority will not. And so what we have to do is to organize and fight. Let me tell you why I appreciate what Senator Warnock is doing. You got to have folks on the inside and the outside. I'm not going to get elected senator. It's not my desire. But we need people on the inside who understand our story and will move forward. What we need on the inside are Daniels, right? Mm. Happens when the Babylonians come, they take away, and it says of Daniel that he was good looking. He was smart, right? They took away the cream of the crop. 
and they brought them to Babylon. And the majority of us who are living our middle-class Negro lives, right? Uh, We got a little money, we got a car, we got some clothes, we, we got all that stuff. Most of us are not living as Daniel did. We just so happy to be at the table. What Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar is, I ain't gonna eat your food and I'm not gonna take your name. What we have to do is be committed to our tradition. And let me say this and I'll stop, Brenda. We need to understand, and Robin D.G. Kelly and his work on Freedom Dreams and so many others, his is the first thing that comes to mind. When black people have been afforded political and economic power, we have done what is for the benefit of all people. That's right. Black people ran the legislature in South Carolina. We did not treat white people like we they treated us. We mandated in South Carolina universal free public education. The white folk who had power weren't even going to educate poor white people because poor white people are victimized by white supremacy as well. And so we need to understand that when we are in charge, we do what is human. And what we need to do is to build alliances like Fred Hampton. That's the first Rainbow Coalition. What was Fred doing? He was pulling together Latinx folks, poor white folks in Chicago. And Hoover said, we got to kill him because he is going to organize all poor people against this corporatocracy. Mm-hmm. Right? That was the fusion movement. That's what uh, uh, Barbara is talking about now. Black people. white. So I am speaking from within my own black context. I privilege that. What I'm saying is human pain is human pain. Human misery is human misery. And if all of us will connect and leverage our power, let me say this. Black women did that thing in Georgia that we need to organize black women leading us, as you all always have. Ella Baker. Right. And always have Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer organized across the spectrum, the poor and the dispossessed, so that we can recreate this nation in a way that our abundance is not hoarded by billionaires, but is shared by all of God's children. Wow, Bill. Woo, Bill, Bill, Bill. We do have a question in the chat. Is there someone? Go ahead. How would you define, well, we have actually three. Let me do this one first. How how do we, the church, hold the space between the generations of Black people in this moment? In other words, a range of how we engage the moment like Eli and Samuel. Mm, oh, that's beautiful. I love I love that story. That's a, it's a beautiful story. So a, a couple of things. I'm going to talk about, again, Warnock's book, The Divided Mind of the Black Church, where he's arguing about the fact that we have a pietist strain and we have a liberationist strain. What I think we need to do is, and again, this this sounds very pedestrian, but all revolutions begin with conversation. I think we need to talk to one another. Do you remember growing up in households when people were not buried in screens necessarily, but we would sit, we would talk, we would exchange? The reason that I can tell you that story about my daddy, um, whom I did not know, is because my daddy told me the story. Right. The reason I can tell you the story about my granddad and the rabbits is because I listened to him when he talked. I think that if we are able to sit together and to talk, if we are able to have conversations across generations, If the young people would put aside the stereotypes they have about the older and the older put aside the stereotypes they have about the younger and have basic get to know you, understand my context questions, it does make a difference. Let me be clear. There will be tensions because we see the world differently, but we share this world together. And if people are clear that we exist to bequeath to the coming generations a world better, a church more faithful, more joy, more life, more love, then I think we can sit down and have conversations that are honest. I think what the older folk need to understand is the young people do not abide by the social conventions that we abide by. They just don't. They live in a different day. What the younger people need to understand 
is that the older folks require a certain amount of respect, right? What I would hope is that the older folks would seek to try to earn the respect of the young folks. And I understand, think that they'll just get it by virtue of age. But I think that if, if we can return to just some basic conventions of what we knew about respect of elder and also something that, that happened in my growing up, we were taught to respect the elders, but the elders also stirred up our curiosity, right? So it was a both and. Young people will not respect elders who do not respect their curiosity, right? You can't tell them this is the way it is, shut up. Yes. You got to have a larger conversation. Yes. Oh, I love that. Um, Virginia Lee Roberts has a question in the chat. Um, how would you define a white ally? Mm. Wow, that's 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 a wonderful question. I, I think uh, there. I was on talking with someone recently. I cannot remember. They had a a name that they prefer to allyship, and it's escaping me now. Let, let me say this: I think that all of us are clear, and I and I I, I don't want to be so heady that I miss these things. This is what human beings deserve. Every human being deserves shelter. Every human being deserves clean water, fresh food education for their minds. Every human being deserves a living wage. I'm reading a book now called, um, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but the the author is arguing that what we have to do is stop connecting human worth to work. Mm. Whether I have a job or not, I'm a human being. I deserve certain things. So it's a total undoing and a break with how we consider. So I say all that to, to our sister, and I'm gonna, let's assume that you're, you're white just for the sake of my argument, that we all, that I think that those of us who come from a perspective of profound human dignity, we can agree on much of that. I think the work for white people is to go among white people and talk to them. So the way that Du Bois frames his magisterial souls of black folk, he says in the beginning, white folks come to him and ask him, how does it feel to be a problem? What that is, is one of the original okie dokes of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Large responsibility for it with black people. That ain't my responsibility. You created, you nurture that system. Yours is the problem. You must fix it. So what I say to white people who want to work on behalf of, of, of revolution and humanity, your most difficult work is not going to be hanging around black people because black people just accept you, right? By and large, we don't bother nobody. You must go to white folks, your own people. You must work among them to convert them away from whiteness. And by that, I do not mean their physicality. Away from the theology and politics of whiteness. They must be converted from that demonic frame to humanity. That's your work. I cannot do that. I've been on multiple platforms of white people. White people ain't gonna listen to me. Who those who are deeply ensconced in whiteness, they're not gonna hear me. There is a chance that they might hear you. Your work of evangelism, you must follow Jesus. You must go to Jerusalem first. Mm. You make your difference there. Now we I want you to be, I want us to be friends and to enjoy one another. I'm for all of that. But the work of white people who are concerned with the changing of the world, your difficult work is to convert white people from the theology, philosophy, and politics of whiteness. That is what has us where we are. That's what allyship looks like. You do your work in Jerusalem. You don't need to be coming to the uttermost parts. We'll hang out. We'll chop it up. But you need to go to Jerusalem. Well, let me just say that Virginia Lee Roberts is my friend. And no, she's not white. She is very okay. much black, very much right. in California, working with Pico. And uh, she introduced me to white fragility. Oh, with, <laughs> well, I, well look, thank you. I, oh, yeah. And look, I, I hope I'm sorry about that, sister. But I, I hope that was helpful. I think in my mind, I needed to make you something that, to get the fuller answer. But but white folks need to go to Jerusalem, baby. That's where your work is. <laughs> wow. I think that liberates her too. That helps. Wow. That really helps her in the work that she's doing out there in California. So uh, thank you for that. Thank you so much. 
I see Elisa Cupid has a has a question as well. Yeah, she does. Um, what are the ways in which you are teaching these biblical truths as your at your church through biblical Bible studies and ministries? And what are you what are you teaching or introducing your congregation to? What readings? Wow, that's an absolutely wonderful question. So. Send us the list too, you know. Yes, and, and, and let me give that to y'all because somebody can put it in chat and there are others out there who can add to the list. But <laughs> we read Jesus and the Disinherited by Thurman. Thurman. It's first thing we read together because I needed the people to understand that the Jesus we have been given has been given to us for a certain reason. We must reject that Jesus because that Jesus did not come for life. That Jesus they gave us was a Jesus who comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. We have to name that. Jesus they gave us is not the abundant life Jesus. And so I saw working with the people in the congregation slowly and deliberately, and myself, of course, because we all have to continue this work of strengthening our interpretation to read the books that will help us to read scripture. Because here's the thing that we must begin with. Scripture is not self-interpreting. All of us bring interpretation to the text. That is why in the liturgical traditions, there is something called the prayer for illumination. Because the ancients were wise enough to know that when I handle this book, I'm handling life and death. And I need God's spirit to help me to read it and to proclaim it. So Howard Thurman helped us. We read Aubrey Hendricks together, The Politics of Jesus. He helped us. We read Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God by Kelly Brown Douglas. She helped us. We read articles uh, by the Native scholar, uh, Brother Warrior. I can't remember his first name. And his, his, his article was this. Why do people like Black folks and Native people run around talking about the promised land? <laughs> We're the Canaanites. We the ones who got who got killed and bum rushed and stole. So his argument is we must read the text from our own vantage point. Dr. Jeremiah Wright, my hero, reminds us that not one book in scripture was written outside of oppression. Egyptian, Babylonian, Assyrian, Greek, Roman. Every book was written within the milieu of oppression nigh unto extermination. And so practically we read the books and what we're doing now is something that I recommend to you. There is so much material on YouTube. So I'll show a 15 minute clip of Renita Weems talking about scripture and we will discuss Renita Weems theology of the Bible. I put up a clip of Dr. Will Gaffney talking about scripture and we discussed it. Here's the thing and I'm gonna blame preachers for this scary tale preachers who go to seminary and come back talking that same mess they were talking before they went because they are afraid to open the minds of God's people to inquiry, for inquiry. I just got through preaching on Luke where Jesus is in the temple. Jesus ain't in the temple with them pouring stuff in his head. He's asking questions. Your church is holy only if it is a place where questions are being asked. You cannot call it the temple of God if there is no question, right? And so what we've got to do is to stop being, I tell the people at Metropolitan, everything I learned at seminary, I'm gonna teach you. Mm -hmm. We talk about Darbyism. We talk about apocalyptic. We talk about the fact that the words used for God in Genesis are not gendered, right? We talk about that. I'm, I'm not going, I'm not a Gnostic. I don't believe that I will taste salvation because I got special knowledge. The job of the preacher is to learn and to share and to upset the theological world of those who are in your congregation. That's right. But to love them enough as a pastor to help them come back to the space they need to get to after their world has been upset. This is my thing. I need to upset your world in the cause of liberation because the United States government and the popo and the corporations are doing all of their upsetting of your world in the interest of your death and commodification. We must upset your world in the interest of liberation, hope, 
love, and life. And wow. so every preacher, stop being afraid to teach the people what you have learned. If you, like me, look, I'm on the slow bus. If you could figure it out, so can your people. Ain't nothing special about you. Teach them what you have learned. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. I heard you say that victory is continuing the fight. Oh, and that's what we have to do in Georgia. Oh, so yes. talk you to us about your statement of black joy mm-hmm. is black resistance. And so let, black let resistance see. is black joy. Let, let, me, let, let me tell you all this. Uh, the blues, James Cone wrote about it, and so many others are going back to it. Um, but y'all know they call it Stormy Monday. Tuesday's just as bad. Wednesday's worse. <laughs> Thursday's also sad. The eagle flies on oh, Friday. Friday. <laughs> Saturday night, I go out to play, right? Then on Sunday, what do I do, right? If you pay attention to that song, that song is helping us theologically and culturally. It goes through the life and struggle of Black folk. Now, some of us got caught up in all this craziness. You know, this is devil's music. Us. No, for us, For the African, there is no sacred or secular. The earth is the Lord's, not the church is the Lord's, not gospel music is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's, right? So I lift up the blues song because the blues shows an interminable black desire to live and to love, to dance, to eat fried fish, to drink beer, to make love, that's life. And the church should celebrate black life and joy. Black life, joy, resistance is that which allows us to fight on another day. So I'm saying the fight must be perpetual, but the joy too must be perpetual. So what was I doing early on Sunday morning before preaching? And I'm like over here. Most of this gospel music I don't listen to because I think the theology of it is awful. There's some of it that's decent, but that's just me. I was listening on Sunday morning to Sarah Vaughn and Clifford Brown. That's what I was listening to. I was listening, I was listening to that joy. I got through with that and I listened to John Coltrane's Love Supreme. Right? I got through that and I, I love the hip hop of Atlanta. I started listening to the Getty Mob, Goody Mob and Outcast. That stuff feeds me before I preach because I hear God speaking to me when Clifford plays. I hear God speaking to me when Three Stacks drops a verse, right? That black joy when Sarah Vaughn, like young, sassy Sarah Vaughn singing, ain't nothing better. That deep black joy that produces art that is the envy of the world, we must marry the joy and the struggle. I think the here's the problem. Some of us only do joy, and that is to detriment. Some of us only do struggle. That'll kill you too. What we need is the marriage of the gift of black joy, which must be perpetual in the midst of death's onslaught and stalking us, Thurman's hounds of hell. Black joy must be perpetual, but black struggle is perpetual. Because hear me, no matter what this verdict is, I want you to celebrate but you better know that America is not done. Yes, right. When they passed the 13, 14, the 15 amendments, you know what they did? Promptly, this the same Supreme Court is down the street from me. They gutted those amendments as they related to helping black people become citizens. And they made corporations, people using those same amendments. Be careful, celebrate, but sleep in America always with one eye open. Because America is not finished doing her work unless we come together as women, as men, queer folk, everybody to demand that we're going to live differently. And so, Brenda, for me, that black joy is holy. When somebody tell me they're going to a concert, they're about to get together with their friends with some wine, some cheese, some paint and sip, some scotch, some bourbon, some running around the block, cooking together, whatever you do. Man, get fill up on joy and get in the street after you're joyful and fight like hell for the kind of world that God wants us all to enjoy. Ooh, Bill, you have just enriched my soul today. Um, 
the the my sisters that are part of this uh, timely wisdom, we love social justice. Uh, and I got a new word: salvation is social justice. Mm-hmm. So when I talk to folk from today on, it will be salvation. Are you you talking social justice? No, I'm talking about salvation. I, mm-hmm. I, I really, really, I, I have I've got to grab hold to that. Thank you so mm-hmm. much, Bill. Thank, thank you thank so you. much. Much love to you, Brenda. Much love to you all, Doctor Wright, Doctor Bradford, Doctor Burns. Thank you. So much. We got another question, though. I have one more question. Uh, you talk mm-hmm. about um, us experiencing joy, but after we experience that joy, go into the struggle, right? How do we bring our social justice constituents in different mm-hmm. areas together to form a, a universal message? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think, uh, Dr. Bradford, it's it's not easy, but I do a lot of interfaith, interreligious work, and what we mm-hmm. tend to we gather together. So again, I want to I want to be I want to return to a uh, to a, a theological term that always helps me. When we talk about Jesus being God and human, the ancients used the term hypostasis. So they said Jesus is not half God and half man, half God and half human being, half God, half woman. Jesus is all God and all human, hypostatically joined. You cannot separate. So I want to be careful about my language that we are not half joy and half struggle. We are all joy and all struggle. The way that the divine and human natures are joined hypostatically in Jesus, our natures of joy and struggle should be be joined hypostatically in us. So when we come together, uh, among with Jewish brothers and sisters, Unitarian Universalists, ethical humanists, we sit in silence. And this is a book I want to recommend, Into the Silent Land. I can't remember the author. This is what the author is saying. So the Western folk have got this stuff all messed up where you got to Go and search for God. You ain't got to search for God. He's still. He's still enough to become aware of the fact that God is with you, that God is in you. We are afraid of this language of the Eastern church, but they have a process called, they talk about divinization, that God has become human so that humans can become divine. That's it. When we sing, we are climbing Jacob's ladder, what our ancestors are saying is, The divine has come to us so that we can ascend and become divine as God intended for us to be. Every round goes higher and higher. We are not earthbound, although we are earthly, but we are also bound to the cosmos, to the heavens, to the universes that are yet discovered, yet described. And so we sit still long enough to understand that beyond the weaknesses of our creeds, our theologies, our doctrine, and all of them are weak, none of them contain God. If your God can fit in the Bible, you can have that God. I don't want no God that can fit in the Bible. I want no God They can only fit in the church. You keep that God. The mystery of God is beyond what humans have been able to record, although we are called to think toward the divine. We sit long enough, Dr. Bradford, for the God who is in us, who is deeply us to speak. And so what gets lost in a lot of what I'm saying is, and this is why I started with Luke 4, this is the work of spirit. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Not, and I like a Marxist analysis, not a das Kapital is upon me. Not, and I love Martin King, I have a dream is upon me, Right? Not, and I love Angela Davis, the revolution is upon me. The spirit of the Lord and the spirit encompasses all of that revolutionary activity, but it originates in God's spirit. How do you think Angela was about the revolution? She might not call it that, but the language I would use, God's spirit got a hold of. God's spirit got a hold of King. God's spirit, you hear me, all you capitalists in America got a hold of Marx to help him to see capitalism in all of its flaws, to try to push it to something that might be more humane. And we know there are issues with that. So we sit long enough to have that encounter, to hear what Thurman called the sound of the genuine, to connect us beyond the frailties of our understanding of the divine. Oh, merciful God. Oh, my God. Merciful God. Merciful God. Merciful God. Merciful God. 
Yes, thank God today. But help me, Bill, you know, the Republicans, especially in that last administration, they, and I, we don't use that name here, but they all had the same playbook. Oh, yeah. So how, and I think that's where Dr. Bradford was trying to go. Where is our playbook so that we all speak with one tongue? Mm-hmm. Whether you be over here in Methodism, whether you be Baptist, whether you be Pentecostal, how do we speak not with forked tongue, but mm-hmm. with one tongue? Well, let me be clear and, about and, that. And, 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 before ahead, you, and before you answer, we only have about two minutes left. Okay, Doc, I'll be quick. Let me say this. They were using their ancestral playbook. They weren't making up nothing. Everything that they did, it was something that Andrew Jackson did. Something Andrew Johnson did, something that Thomas Jefferson did, right? They were using their ancestral playbook. We are the people who have decided to torch our ancestral playbook. We have torched it. If you read our ancestral playbook, the chapter on Fannie Lou Hamer, she'll tell you how to organize and how to fight for democracy in an undemocratic space but we torched the book. We have torched our ancestral playbook. I encourage you listening, read our ancestors, what they wrote, how they thought. Read Henry Turner, read Ida Wells Barnett. They have left us the playbook. We have torched it and forgotten it. We can't blame them for using their ancestral playbook when we so busy want to read theirs that we've forgotten about our own. Bless you, brother, brother Bill. We just thank you so much for illuminating us today. Um, even in these COVID streets, man, you have brought, <laughs> you have brought the house down, the, mm. the, the shingles are, are, are hanging off and we are, we're just grateful that you decided to um, come and be with us. And I will be calling you again. I am honored. Much love to you all, my colleagues. Thank you. Yes. Next week. Who do we have next week? Next we have none other than Bishop Ann Henning Byfield. You do not want to miss next week. She is talking about working on me. Same time next week, three o'clock. See you then. Love you. (laughs) 